Hi and welcome to the St Saviour's Finsbury Park podcast. Our vision is to be a church alive in God's love to serve the city. And we hope this teaching helps you to know God and serve him more wherever you've been uniquely placed. Let's jump in. Well, hello. Almost oh, a bit high, isn't it? Um, great. So we've been in the series uh, on the Lord's Prayer, uh, which we've just heard uh, read for us. And um, I'm just putting my timer on so that we don't, uh, we don't go into lunch. Okay, so we've been in the series on the Lord's Prayer. It's in Matthew. It's in Luke. And Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And as Beck said last week, and I love this, it's not because nobody knew how to pray. Uh, it's because um, sometimes we need to learn things that we already do. If, if Gordon Ramsay wants to teach me how to cook, I do know how to cook, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take his lesson. And, um, and so Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. To God who is Father, as Matt said, to God who, uh, whose kingdom breaks into this world, to God who provides, as Beck said, and today, to God who also forgives. And, um, and I feel today that we're touching on some holy ground, in a sense, because many of the most vulnerable parts of our humanity are related in some way to forgiveness. When I think of forgiveness, um, I think of my own longing for forgiveness, uh, longing for a relationship to be restored. I might think of the pain of shame, I might think of the joy of relationship when it can be restored, those, those wonderful relationships that have been dented and repaired and dented and repaired. I might also think of the pain of ways in which I've been wronged. And these may come up for you as you hear the word forgiveness. In fact, they, they probably do. Perhaps this morning you're in a place as well where you find it very difficult to forgive, to know what that means, to know how to do it humanly, whether or not you even want to whether or not it's possible to do in a way that won't damage you again. And all these feelings, I think, come to the surface whenever the topic of forgiveness is raised. And it's such a beautiful and complex and hope-filled and painful and rich and intricate topic that I genuinely wish this was a conversation more than a monologue because I'd quite like to learn from you, from your experiences, and we all have our own stories in this room. And so perhaps over the course of this week, not that I wish to derail your hubs, but it might be that there's a moment to reflect on what a wonderful reflection you heard on Sunday and to continue, <laughs> continue the conversation because we all have something to bring and we all have something to share and something to learn. And so today we're, we're treading gently knowing that it brings up probably our deepest longings, our deepest shame, our deepest pain, and maybe even our deepest hopes. And so we're treading carefully for that reason. So let's explore what Jesus is talking about when he says uh, about forgiveness. Forgive us our sins or our debts as we forgive those who sin against us or who are our debtors. And we're going to do this looking at two images. And they're going to come up on the screen. Uh, so image number one, is it on the screen? Fantastic. Okay, so it's all up there. Now this is, uh, it's called the, the Prodigal Son. It was painted by Rembrandt, who by all accounts was a very good painter, uh, in the 1660s. Okay, and, and this is reckoned to be one of the, some art critics say this is one of the most beautiful paintings ever, ever made. I'm getting some nods from mimes. It is one of the most beautiful paintings ever created. Now, the story of the Prodigal Son 
um, if, if you don't know it, or even if you do, is really the story of a family of three. Okay, you've got a father, and you've got an elder brother, and then you've got a younger brother, um, and all is going well until the younger brother gets bored of his dad and bored of home and bored of the village that he lives in, and he says, look, dad, I know you're not dead, but one day you will be, and when you are, you're going to give me some of your money, so could you give it to me now so that I can then go out and sort of live my life? And the father agrees, which is a very strange thing to do, but he does, and so he agrees, and the son goes off and he sort of lives his life in what the Bible describes as wild living. Uh, so he goes to pie, he has a few too many lemonades, he mixes with the wrong people, and he finds himself waking up in, in pig manure, which is a very, you know, that's not the best thing at the best of times, but for him, it's particularly shameful. And, and he comes to his senses and he thinks to himself, my dad, he's a rich man, he's given me half his money, but he's still a rich man, he's got some servants, and, and if I go home, dad's going to hate me, but if I go home, uh, at least maybe I can become a servant. And uh, I'll have some food on the table and a roof over my head and a nice warm bed. And so he slinks his way home and he thinks, dad, maybe you can bring me in as one of your servants. Now the Bible says, while he's still a long way off, the father who's been up day and night looking for his son sees him, runs, embraces him, brings him home, gives him a ring and a robe, and a fatted calf, which I think is, I'd love to be given a fatted calf whenever I go home. Uh, so I think that's brilliant. Now, this is a, a picture depicting the climactic moment of that story. And, and in it, we have the son on his knees, having crawled home in remorse and in shame. And perhaps you felt like that, either toward a person or towards maybe God, Maybe you felt in your life sometimes real regret or real shame. And if you look at his body language, you can kind of see in him uh, themes of hope. Maybe father, maybe dad's going to maybe dad's going to be kind to me. Maybe you can sense his relief that it seems to be going well. There, there's an embrace. Maybe there's some relief there. Is it relief or is it regret? Now he's loving me, and now I see what I threw away. Maybe it's maybe it's both. One of his shoes is on. And one of his shoes is off. He's, he doesn't care how he looks. He's just glad to be there. He's lost everything in the process of coming home. The other men in the foreground, the father and the elder brother, they're in red. They're robed. He isn't robed. He's not yet been robed by the father. And, and then you have the father, the, the, the one in the picture who perhaps most obviously has been wronged. And he's stooping down, look at him, his, his back's slightly curved. He's stooping down to his son's level. He's hunched over slightly as if to cover him, as if to bring him into safety. This is the father, he's the patriarch. He, he, he should be dignified. When a guest comes in, he probably should be sat down, ready to receive them. And yet he stood up, hunched over, slightly needy slightly longing for this reconciliation with the son who's betrayed him and brought him nothing but shame. You have the elder brother. He's looking on from some distance. He's further away from the embrace. He's the only character in this story, only of the main three characters in this story, not in physical contact with anybody else. He has a stick. 
He's upright. Perhaps he looks more dignified than the father. But is there also something cold? Is there also something painful or something hesitant about his expression? Maybe he's resenting his brother for coming home. We know from the story they had a troubled relationship. Maybe he's sad to be missing out on the celebration that's going to be happening. Maybe he really regrets uh, the fact... um, that, that he's not been, uh, that, that maybe he really, really regrets uh, missing out on, on this moment of reconciliation. In it, you have the father, you have the son, and you have the elder brother. It's the longing to be forgiven, the gift of forgiveness, and the pain that forgiveness can also generate as a theme, because so much of the complexity of all of this is summed up in this image, and perhaps today we can identify with one or other, maybe several of those states. And Christianity has always promised uh, forgiveness. It's always talked about forgiveness. But the question is, for what and by whom? I'm sure like me, you have friends who object to Christianity because they think humans are originally good, we're fundamentally beautiful, and Christianity makes us feel bad about ourselves in order to sell us a solution we don't actually need. It's actually like the world's worst sales, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever done sales when you try and sell something to fix a problem that that person doesn't acknowledge. Um, It's a bit like when you get a phone call uh, from people saying, have you been in an accident that wasn't your fault? And you say, no, I haven't. And they say, well, our records indicate you have. And you say, well, your records are wrong. And then they hang up because it's a scam. And so we know that when you try and sell somebody something that they don't actually need to solve a problem they don't actually have, the sale doesn't get made. It's a particular type of evangelism, which I've done and can function in that way. And so the question is, what actually is sin? How does Christianity actually understand sin? Well, one way to understand it is is as a sickness, Sin can be understood as a sort of existential frailty that we carry, that comes in and that limits and that infects and that makes us so much less than we were made to be. Olivier Clément, who's a French Orthodox theologian, he he describes this sickness as this. He says, from our own experience and from our observation of others, we're aware that human nature has been damaged. Damaged, first of all, within each of us, The self is a shadow theatre of neurotic characters, and it's they who pull our strings instead of the other way around. Our faculties are disunited and out of order. While the rational intelligence is busy making orders, the heart, in obedience to dark subconscious forces, obliterates them. We're turned this way and that, lacking any centre of balance. Not only are we disunited as individuals, we are the same in relation to each other. Whether we are alone or involved with others, we remain separate and hostile, even in our involvement. Now, in a way, this kind of complexity and ambiguity and ambivalence is just part of what it is to be human, but Olivier Clement is getting at something quite profound. That sin, an existential frailty, a sickness that we become infected with, that we carry, can so limit our own lives and make things really quite dangerous for me and also for those around me. But the story of Scripture goes even further. The story of Scripture says that this disease of sin is actually a fatal one. In fact, in one of the most dramatic lines in in the Bible, it says, the wages of sin is death. The idea is that sin is a fatal disease, 
Our tendency to become curved in on ourselves leads to death and needs a great physician. And as uh, Brad Jerzak, a, a great, interesting theologian, says, sin is a fatal disease. And you can't just punish somebody out of sickness. You need to send them a great physician. And, and I think that's what Rembrandt's image is giving us. When we find ourselves on our knees, ashamed, having hurt those we love the most, having done what we never thought we would do, unable to look ourselves in the eye, the great physician comes close. And for a moment, even when we find it impossible to love ourselves, we know ourselves to be loved by another. Jesus, in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, talks about debts. He talks about sin as debt, a sort of moral debt incurred towards another, something about something being owed. And Jesus knows that that's going to bring up for any Jewish hearer the story of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where, where in the Jubilee, God in, instigates this wonderful financial revolution in the year of Jubilee, where debts are forgiven, where debts are written off. And, and although this scripture is primarily about sin, uh, in our kind of current economic disaster zone that we live in, it's important also to realize Jesus has an awful lot to say about money. And so he hearkens back to this Leviticus and this Deuteronomy language, this social revolution invoked in the year of Jubilee, aimed at dismantling economic power structures and giving dignity to everybody, the wanderer, the enslaved, and the free. And in the Old Testament passages where God talks about debt, he always says to the Israelites, he says, be kind to the foreigner, because remember, you were once a foreigner in Egypt. Be kind to the enslaved because you too were once enslaved. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus uses this language of debt again, he says, forgive as you have been forgiven. There's some sort of a parallel where in the old, the, 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 the kindness to the outsider is because we too are outsiders. And in the new, the forgiveness we offer is because we too can be forgiven. There's something duel about this forgiveness. We're both sinned against and sinner. Forgive us our sins, the scripture says, as we forgive those who sin against us. And in this image, uh, in some sense, both the father and the older brother have been wronged. The father has been betrayed and wronged in a huge sense, but, but also the older brother feels that he's been cast aside. He feels like he's been neglected and left out. And whether or not we think today his resentment is justified maybe misses the point. Both people in this are in pain. And we can be in pain too, can't we? Because of things that others have done to us. Isabel and I have um, recently been doing the marriage course, which is really good uh, and really helpful in, in many respects. But there's one little section that talks about forgiveness in there, and it talks about forgiveness is a choice of the will. And I was doing the course, I was you know, listening to, watching the, you know, the, the speakers and writing down notes, and I got to this point where they said forgiveness is a choice. And I stopped, and I wrote the word simplistic next to that section, and I just carried on. Now, I'm not saying it's not a choice. It, it might well be, and that might be a really helpful way of thinking about it. But for me, in that moment, what was rising up in me wasn't rational, it was just emotional, and it was just a sense of, oh, I feel things might be more complicated than that. And sometimes 
we can get this bit of the equation horribly wrong. Sometimes forgiveness is incredibly tricky. And we need to acknowledge how hard it can be to forgive. What does it even mean in some situations? Does it mean I don't think about what didn't hurt me? That might work for some scenarios, but not for others. And a very common approach can be to bottle it up inside to refuse to own our own anger and aggression and to try our best not to think about it. And even if we do manage to cancel the debt against us, that doesn't mean that the pain doesn't necessarily continue. We all know that some things can hurt for many years afterwards. And I think Jesus knows this because he immediately locates the theme of forgiveness in the most complex and beautiful and nuanced of all human scenarios, that of relationship. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Jesus gets right into our capacity to hurt and to be hurt. And here we have, I think, the very heart of the problem of this passage. We all know sometimes that we might long for forgiveness. We might imagine longingly the joy of a relationship being restored and our sense of shame being cleansed. And at the same time, sometimes we find that we ourselves cannot forgive. We want to, maybe, but we just don't know how. We're caught in this dynamic, rocking back and forth between these two positions. And sometimes I wonder, in this whole conversation on forgiveness, whether we need an ability to hold on to both the beauty of forgiveness alongside the need to recognize the pain that has been caused. In the 1800s, a priest and a hymn writer, Frederick Faber, captured this theme very movingly, and he wrote, there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There is no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than up in heaven. There is no place where earth's failings have such kindly judgment given. I love that idea of both there being no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than up in heaven, and no place where earth's failings have such kindly judgment given. Here we have the ambivalences of this. We're both wronged and wrongdoers. So how can we find any peace? Well, for that, uh, next slide, please. And uh, we turn to our second image. This is the icon of the Anastasis, or the icon of the resurrection. And in this, we see Christ coming out of the very bowels of hell. And he's coming out having won a victory over death by rising from it. You'll see around him, you have some prophets on one side, some saints, one side or the other. Um, but, But look what he's got in his hands. He's got a man and he's got a woman. He's got Adam and Eve, the representatives of humanity, you and me. And just below Christ's feet, you have some broken ground. And that represents the broken power of hell. And underneath that, you have a skeleton representing hell and the devil. And he's all sort of bound up and looking really dead and defeated. And in the hands of Jesus are all humanity. Somewhere I think there are some keys as well, but I couldn't find them, so you probably won't either. Um, And this image is deeply rooted in the story of Scripture. The Bible talks about the wages of sin being death, i.e. this debt we owe eventually leads to decay. But here we have a scene of death transformed into subversive victory. The sickness of death, which has proved fatal for Adam and Eve, for you and for me, is met in Christ. 
God, God's self, enters the story of sickness in order to contract the disease that has killed his beloved, so that he might die to be with them, to be near them, even in their death. As Brendan Manning, the priest and writer, says, God loves you so much, he'd rather die than be without you. And he dies in order to draw us out. Because Christ longs to forgive, he draws us continually out of the bonds of our enslavement. And so we are Adam and Eve in that picture, forgiven in order that we might rise with Christ. But when we forgive, we also become a bit like Jesus. To forgive, the saying goes, is human, or to err is human. To forgive is divine. And and elsewhere in the Gospels, uh, Jesus gets told by the onlookers that only God can forgive sins. We know it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, and so we give it only to God. And so when we do forgive other people, we participate somehow in the life of Christ. This idea of forgiveness in Matthew's Gospel is returned to again and again and again. Uh, As you forgive, you will be forgiven. If you don't forgive, that's not a very good place to be. Uh, You want to be forgiving other people. There's the the story of the two debtors that appears elsewhere, where, where one debtor owes an awful lot of money and he's forgiven his debts, but at the same time, he begins to cash in on those little mini debts that other people are owing him. Matthew, St. Matthew and Jesus in this gospel are looking to communicate that forgiveness is really central because when we forgive, we have an opportunity to participate in the life of Christ. We participate in that life because forgiveness is so impossible. We need resources bigger than ourselves. And so let's not get carried away. It's an incredibly complex and difficult thing to do. It can be tortuous, but when we see it, we instinctively know that it's beautiful. I heard a story uh, this last summer of uh, a young man who grew up in a small town, the kind of town where everybody knows everybody's business. And he made some bad decisions as a teenager and he ended up getting taken away. And his family were embarrassed, they were sad, they were... He knew that they would be ashamed. It was one of those awful situations. And on the day that he was released from prison, he wrote to his parents and he said, Dear Mum and Dad, I'm going to be passing through our town on Tuesday of next week. I totally understand if you never want to see me again. But if you do, why don't you hang a towel on the washing line in front of the house and I'll know it's safe to come in. Now, on Tuesday the following week, as the train pulled into the station, he looked, and you know where it says, welcome to Finsbury Park, welcome to Mythical Town, there was a towel that had fallen to the floor and was just soaked with rain, he thought nothing of it. And he got out of the station, he walked into the town square, and he turned left onto the long road that led to where his parents lived, where he grew up, he knew people, he was looking down, trying to avoid eye contact. And as he walked down the road, he noticed hanging in the trees with these tiny towels, And as he pulled up to his parents' house, he looked and he saw the washing line hung in the front garden, covered with towels, and his parents standing lovingly at the doorway. When God forgives, he does it radically. When God forgives, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't hide it. He's not embarrassed of us. Like those parents, he goes above and beyond. God's love in the Bible is that radical. 
This beautiful hymn continues. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice that is more than liberty. There is no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than up in heaven. There is no place where earth's failings have such kindly judgment given. But we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify his strictness with a zeal he will not own. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. If we find ourselves today rocking backwards and forwards between needing forgiveness and being unable to forgive, between sensing we need to do both things but we can't find ourselves there, perhaps we can start simply by receiving. To know we're loved by Christ, the great physician, who took on our sickness to give us his wholeness. Love that was not fickle or faint or fair weather, but went to the grave when he knew that was where he would find us. If we can't forgive today, let God's kindness meet us there. And before we do our thing, before we do anything, may our hearts first be warmed by his profound love for us. Why don't we stand and we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. Then we're going to go into some worship. Um, but let's, let's end by saying the Lord's Prayer. These, these beautiful words together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.